Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 247, and I'm Ryan Tansom, your host. On today's show, we're going to be diving into how the clarity of your intent and your long-term vision and why you have certain morals and values that you have ingrained into your long-term plan impact your personal greatness and your future potential as well as your leadership and all aspects of your business and your life. It's a huge risk, in my opinion, diving into leadership discussions because so many books and thought leaders out there tends to be a lot more fluff and a lot more regurgitation of other people's opinions. And so... When I looked at our guest's bio, their background, and why they wanted to be talking about leadership and personal greatness on today's show, I was like, okay, this person has definitely got the experience and credibility to speak on the topic. And who is today's guest? Well, his name is Warren Rustand, and not only did he work alongside President Ford, but also he had a lengthy career running, growing, and selling companies that were anywhere from a small private business to taking multi-billion dollar companies public. I'm going to take a minute to read Warren's bio because he's got such a long, extensive experience and background that I think is worth noting because it is that important that he extracts his observations on leadership from the experience that he has. In 1973, Warren was selected as a White House Fellow through a nationally competitive process. He was appointed as the Special Assistant to the Secretary of Commerce, where he co-led the first ever executive-level trade mission to the Soviet Union. He then became Special Assistant to Vice President Gerald Ford in 1974. When the Vice President became President, he asked Warren to serve as the Appointments Secretary and Cabinet Secretary to the President. Following his time in public service, Warren again entered the private sector as an entrepreneur. He subsequently was CEO of 10 companies and Chairman of many others. He has served on the Board of Directors of 40 for-profit and not-for-profit organizations. He was a CEO of Providence Service Corp., a $2.1 billion company, Rural Metro, a $600 million company, and TLC Vision, a $400 million company. For 30 years, Warren led a public policy conference in Washington, D.C. called Public Policy in the Private Sector. Over 6,000 CEOs participated in the program, which included meetings with the president, vice president, cabinet secretaries, congressional leadership, members of the Supreme Court, and leading lobbyists and journalists. Warren was the global chair of the World Presidents Organization and is the current dean of learning at the EO Global Leadership Academy, in addition to all regional leadership academies. He is well-known speaker on topics of leadership, personal development, strategy, scaling businesses, entrepreneurship, and family. I wanted to read that because I wanted you to understand the credibility that Warren brings to the table, the sheer amount of decades and different public and private sector experiences that he brings to the table where he can speak to what good leadership is and why working on yourself, your clarity of your vision, your intent, and your values is the first domino that needs to fall in order to Ripple that into your leadership team, into your company and your culture, to all the stakeholders and everything you're trying to accomplish. If you can create a vision that's big enough to have all your employees in it, taking a quote from Dan Martell's interview I did recently, as well as working on yourself to be the leader you know you need to be, then everybody can then also look up to you, trust the vision, trust the intent, all guided by correct morals and values. I really enjoyed this episode. And I want to leave you with a quote that is on Warren's website. One success is relevant only when measured against one's own potential. Think about that as we're about to dive into this episode with Warren and how to achieve your personal greatness and leadership. Without further ado, here's my interview with Warren. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. 
Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Warren, how are you today? Good, Ryan. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing very, very well, and I'm uh, very excited to have you on the show. Um, you have quite the track record and experience, and you've landed on uh, you know, this book that you've uh, been writing, and I don't know how long it's taken you to write it, and it's about leadership, which um, I actually just did a, a podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with David Horsager about... Uh, the trust edge. And he was talking about the trusted leader. He talked about trust a lot. And I'm just really excited. I was watching a couple of your videos online. And uh, I think you've got some interesting takes and spin on like how the, the, just the world is just kind of reshuffling around and some of the important qualities that people need to have these days and how the new leaders have to lean in. But before we dive into all the stuff that's on the forefront of your mind, why don't you just give the listeners a little bit of a background um, of that interesting history that I had mentioned. Well, uh, the quick uh, version of it is this, born and raised poor and I'm on a Minnesota farm near the Canadian border, moved to Southern California when I was 12 years old, discovered surfing and basketball, uh, went on a basketball scholarship to the University of Arizona, where I became an All-American basketball player, drafted by the Golden State Warriors, became CEO of my first company when I was 24 years old, did uh, a couple of companies and then applied for a White House fellowship, several thousand applicants, was one of 17 selected to be a White House fellow. Ended up being the appointment secretary and cabinet secretary of the president of the United States, President Gerald Ford. Uh, got out, uh, bought, a, bought another company and uh, continued building companies. So we built about 17 companies over the years and five of them we've taken public and three of them are very large. So uh, we're, uh, we're doing a lot of fun. The smallest company I've ever run was about a million and a half dollars in revenue. And the largest company was two and a half billion dollars, 17,000 employees. So uh, interesting range, a lot of fun, married, <laughs> yeah. seven children, 19 grandchildren three generations living together on a small farm in the middle of Tucson, Arizona. So that's a small version. Yeah. And then there's so many stories, I'm sure, uh, amongst all those different uh, chapters of your life. I'm just curious, as we were about to jump in, first of all, like, what is the name of the book and why'd you write it? And The name of the book book is The Leader Within Us. My view is that each of us has a leader within us, and we can explore that and exploit that and utilize that to our advantage or not, our choice. But all of us lead in different ways. We may lead in the family. We may lead in the community and our businesses, different ways of doing that. But I think all of us have this spark of leadership in us. Few uh, people don't know how to ignite that spark. And so the book was really written to define the principles of leadership for us at any level, anytime, anywhere. So why that topic? It was interesting because... Obviously, it was enough of a thing where you needed to put an exclamation point that, that it doesn't matter the the career, the stage, and all. So, like, wh- why that topic, and why why did you decide that that was the the theme that you wanted to get out into the world? Well, I guess from my own experience, right? I mean, born poor, as I said, on a farm, and uh, probably could still be on that farm and enjoying life, driving John Deere tractors or something, right? <laughs> but uh, but I've got John Deere tractors here in Tucson on our farm, so it works pretty well. It's a lot warmer. Uh, my my feeling was that all leadership is based fundamentally on certain principles. And all the people I've had a chance to associate with that have been extraordinary, exceptional, generals, politicians, uh, kings, queens, prime ministers, CEOs, uh, people who've led in a significant way have all had these principles in their life. They may not have expressed them the same way, but they're all evident as you watch their life or we get a chance to work with them. We see that these principles are actually actually working. And so my thinking was, let's put them down. Let's be prescriptive. Let's let anyone who reads this book, and I've got about 25 examples of entrepreneurs and people in there who have gone from tragedy to triumph, who had had really a difficult time and have applied these very principles and when applying them have found great success. And so it seems to me that these, uh, these principles are sort of eternal in nature, right? They're always there. They've been there historically from the beginning of time. And if we can apply them then and utilize them in a proper way, then we can be leaders ourselves. So um, one question that, and take these in whatever order you want, Warren, is that one is, you know, if you want to give just the listeners a quick overview of what the principles are, but also, you know, before or after you give that answer is, is how did you come up with these, right? And were these leaders aware of them? or not, you kind of alluded to that a little bit. So like, you know, where and how did you come up with the principles and, and what was your, what was your process of, uh, of determining that this was one that stuck on the list? 
Yes, leaders are aware of them. They may call them different things. They may define them slightly different, but the principle of the leadership of, of the leadership is still there. Now, secondly, as I was first exposed to them by my father, I was his only son. We lived on a farm. I was expected to work alongside him. So starting <laughs> all the time, early, every day, right? <laughs> every day, full time. So every day we would go on, and my father would do some interesting things. He was a very thoughtful guy, well-educated, but he was called home to run the farm from a corporate life Oh. by his brothers and sisters when his parents died suddenly. And so he became the guy, right, uh, for his brothers and sisters to run the farms. We would go out to a field, and before he would start plowing or digging or harvesting with the tractors, he would stand at the edge of the field, and he'd say, now, what do we want this to look like when we're finished? What is it we're trying to do here? And he would verbalize this, and I would just be standing there taking it in. He was really creating a vision, right? for that field, for that moment in time. So the first principle is clarity of vision, clarity of vision, understanding where we're going, what we're trying to accomplish, what outcome do we want to have? Ryan, if you and I could walk into our future 10 years from now, mm -hmm. right now at this time, walk into our future 10 years, what would that be? What clarity do we have about where we're going to be 10 years from now? What outcomes do we want to have? And once we settle on that, then we can take the steps walking backward and create the milestones necessary. The second great principle, certainty of intent, meaning acting with intentionality to get to that outcome. So clarity of vision and certainty of intent, the two great principles. The third great principle is the power of values. It's the notion that all of us in our core have certain, these core beliefs and values, and they govern our lives. Well, those core beliefs and values are the guideposts along the highway toward our clarity of vision. So we may swerve a little left sometimes, and we may swerve a little right. Conditions may change from time to time. But if we can stay on the road to our vision, we will achieve that vision. And if we don't, for any reason, something could get in the way, something that's not our fault, right? The coronavirus. Most likely will get in the way, right? <laughs> yeah. The coronavirus, COVID-19 got in the way of a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of mm -hmm. people, right? Who are walking down the path. You know, 15 months ago, there were a lot of great small businesses in this country that today have closed their doors because not their fault. They were doing fine, but something hit them that they didn't anticipate, couldn't expect, couldn't prepare for. Mm -hmm. So the notion, I think that if we can have clarity of vision, where are we going? If we can have certainty of intent, we act on that vision every day. And then we are driven by the values in our life consistently. We have a really good chance of becoming the leader we want to be and accomplishing that which we want to accomplish. What is the process, Warren, that you've seen? Because I mean, you have not only have you been the leader for tens of thousands of people and also the smaller million dollar revenue business, but also have witnessed these amazing leaders. What is the process they go through to? become this, like, you know, the, the 30 year overnight success, right? Like at right, some point, right. like the things that there's only three that you just listed, but those are really damn hard. Right. So like, right. where That's does right. someone get to that point and how are they slowly piecing those, uh, those pieces together in order to become that full potential that you, that you're mentioning? I think the biggest mistake, Ryan, that a lot of people make is not taking the time to think. We get so busy, particularly with social media. 100%. It's so easy to yeah. respond to the text, the email. It's so busy to surf YouTube. It's so busy to go to Facebook and Instagram. It's, it's The world has become so easy to get to that we forget there are bigger issues, right? And so I, I take an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon. In fact, the hour that I had set aside for my strategic thinking is the hour you and I are spending together today. Oh boy, that's some weight right there. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, had, I've had to move the hour, right? But, <laughs> okay, so I take good, an, hour the, <laughs> an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon where I close my door, shut off my cell phone, turn off my computer. And I just think about great thoughts. Where am I going? What companies do we want to acquire? How am I doing with my family, right? It's the leadership moment, but we don't take that time. If I were to ask you or anyone else, show me your calendar schedule today and show me where you have strategic thinking time on that calendar. And you and others would say, it's not on there. Mm. It's just not on there. And if you're not taking time to think, the chance of you getting to that clarity of vision, the chances of you getting to what you want to become are greatly reduced because we're so easily distracted. It's the next bright, shiny object. It's the next book. It's the next speaker. It's the next TV show. It's the next thing on the computer, whatever it is. We have so much information coming at us, about 40 million stimuli a day. I call those voices and choices. We've got all voices these voices, voices coming at us. I like but that. But we're the only one who get to make the choice for everything we do in our life.
And if we're conscientious about that and apply these principles, the chances are great. May I give you an example? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So about 25 years ago, I was having dinner one night with three mountain climbing friends of mine. And they're all great mountain climbers. And I said to the first mountain climber, I said, what are you going to do over the next 25 years? And he said, well, I'm going to just climb as many mountains as I can. I love being outdoors, love climbing. I said, that's great. I asked the second, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to try climb some of the mountains on each of the seven continents. And I said, that's terrific. I asked the third guy, I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to climb Mount Everest by the time I'm 25. Now, of those three, who had the clearest vision about where they were going? Well, his name is Jamie Clark. He lives in Calgary, Canada. He climbed Everest the first time when he was 21, the second time when he was 23, and the third time when he was 25. <laughs> Why? Because he was clearly focused, right? He had clarity of vision. And once he had clarity of vision, then it became easy. All he had to do was take intentional steps to get there, right? He had to decide who his climbing buddies were, how much money he had to raise, what equipment he was going to use, what what uh, uh, face trek was he going to take up to the top of Everest, right? So it, life becomes more easy then. But when we're all confused by all the stimuli, all the voices and choices, and we don't sift and sort, we become a victim of our society and just getting nothing done or not achieving our highest level of performance. I'm just an average farm kid, average intelligence, average buddy, body, right? Nobody looks at me and says, boy, there goes an NBA player, right? <laughs> but, but I got drafted in the NBA, right? And, and nobody said, there goes the CEO, because I don't shine. My light doesn't shine any brighter than anybody. Else, but I work harder at it. Mm -hmm. I have more clarity about where I'm going and what I'm doing. And so when we do that, I think we have a better chance for success. What is it that sets people apart of le these leaders, Warren, that, like, that allows them to see that vision? Is it something inside of individuals that like they want something more? or Because somehow you have to... like have the desire to want to figure out what that vision is, which take, which allows you then to carve out the time prior to, you know, like, so like, like, have you, do you see some sort of like thing that sets someone off to say, okay, like I need to clarify where I'm going? Yeah, I think so. And I could describe it a lot of ways, but let me try to describe it this way. So there are three days in our life. There's yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Okay. And uh, I only think, uh, you know, the yesterday is gone. All we can take from yesterday is the lessons that we've learned to apply to today. Tomorrow's not here. There's nothing we can do about that. We can think about it and we can plan for it. So that leaves only one day, this day. There's this day and someday. And all, most people are someday people. I'm going to get to that marathon someday. I'm going to lose those 10 pounds someday. I'm going to be a CEO someday. Right. And it's always kicking the can down the road. But the really, exceptional leader is focused on current state this day. What is it I have to get done this day to make someday possible? Mm. This day is really critical. We can learn the lessons from the past. And maybe you've been at some cocktail parties or with friends sometimes, and there's always somebody in the crowd who's always talking about the past because that was the highest level of their achievement, right? Oh, so the, for it sure. was, the, for it was sure. the high school kid who ran 60 yards for a touchdown in the state championship game. And that was the highlight of his life, right? Oh, for sure. And yeah. so he's always got to go back to that. But the leader is always thinking ahead, is always thinking about what do I have to do today to get my clarity of vision achieved, right? So one of the things that I did when I was 19 years old, I was taking a philosophy, philosophy class at the University of Arizona, and something struck me that day that said, I need to write down my goals for my life, my whole life. So I took a couple of weeks and I wrote down the hundred things that I was going to do in my lifetime. Um, and so if I said, Ryan, hold up your list, show me your list today of what you're going to do in your lifetime. I ask anybody else, right? Most people have never done anything like that. Well, by looking at that list every week for the last 59 years, how many of those do you think I've actually achieved? I hope 59. I mean, come on. Cause that's one a year. <laughs> I, I, yeah. 90, 90 of them. What do you think? 98. So I've achieved 98 of the hundred. There are two. I don't think I'll ever achieve, but uh, I'm working at them. It's just that I'm not going to achieve them, I don't think, but I keep working at it. But And then about 20 years ago, I started another list of 100, and I'm about 50 through that. The fact is that if we have clarity of vision about where we're going and what we're going to do, we usually get it done. But without that clarity, you're always operating on someday. Hey, someday. Someday oh, I'll get there. Someday I'll get that advanced degree. I'll get my master. Someday I'll work on a PhD. Someday I'll someday, someday, right? Well, someday it's just not getting it done. So we have to have absolute clarity about what we're doing today that's going to get us to our vision for what we're going to become.
How do you do that? And I think leaders have that. I think leaders have that. They sense that they can impact events or circumstances or people. They sense that they have to have that clarity. And so they spend the time to get the clarity. And so that's what most people don't do. You just pulled, you just touched on something that I think is uh, an interesting characteristic of these leaders of like the the desire to make an impact on events. So is it is there some way of like and you, uh, this is probably inside of your definition of what a truly great leader is, but like it's above and beyond, it's bigger than them, or it's like ego driven, you know what I mean? So it's more altruistic than ego driven. Do you see any kind of like stark contrast between various leaders that you've come across? Yeah, I think you get leaders of both types. I get you some who are altruistic, right? Who are doing it for, uh, for the greater good, the greater benefit. And I think we get many who are driven by ego. And in today's social media world, Everybody wants to be an influencer, right? It's a narcissistic, individualistic, mm-hmm. self-promotional kind of world that most people are living in today. Look, at this is the food I ate today. Here I am in front of the Eiffel Tower in Paris, and this is the boat I'm on, and this is my horse, and mm-hmm. we're all promoting ourselves all the time. And I think the, the, the first great quality of a leader, by the way, is humility. It's not self-promotion. Mm-hmm. There are an awful lot of people, when you think about it, that you don't see on social media that we consider great leaders. Collectively, we would say there are great leaders. They're not on social media. They're not promoting themselves. They're not developing a personal brand. They're not doing that kind of stuff. Why is that? Because they're doing bigger and better things. They're doing greater things. And so uh, I think it's just interesting, you know, the Mother Teresa's, Nelson Mandela's, Winston Churchill's, you know, of of the those, would you expect them to be on social media if they were alive today and doing their thing? I don't think so. They'd be out doing stuff. And they're doing, they're altruistic. They're doing the greater good. Mm -hmm. I think all of us, Ryan, by the way, are called to a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. we're called to a higher purpose. We, and part of the reason we want to have great strategic thinking every day is to discover that higher purpose. That needs to be a part of our clarity of vision, right? That there's a greater good. For instance, my purpose statement, and I've had it for 40 years, is to improve the human condition wherever I find it. So I can't walk by a homeless man without looking him in the eye and respecting that person and recognizing that person and asking if I can help. I can't drive by the automobile accident either, right? Mm -hmm. Or when a friend calls and says, I need your help, then I have to be there to help. That's just something I have to do. That's just me. It's not everybody, but it's just me. And so, and sometimes that also gets in my way, right? Because I'm mm-hmm. always trying to do to help people. And, and sometimes it gets in the way of other things I want to achieve. But I think it's, it's what I'm trying to do with my life. And that's the higher purpose, the higher calling. And that's the recognition of every human being on planet earth for what they bring to the table and where they are at that moment in time. And just respecting them for that. All of us have good times and all of us have bad times. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> and it's uh, so Warren, I want to get into some of the, there was a, one of the videos I was watching online and I don't know how much is integrated in your book, but you're talking about the characteristics of the great leaders. So you got your, your principles. And then there was some, some things that you, you were mentioning the soft skills and, and some various things that I want to get into, because I think this is probably the, like a part two of my question of how a leader, as they get a vision and maybe there's a couple parts to this, which is typical with me. So I apologize. Okay. <laughs> is is uh, you like how rigid they can be? So they come up with a vision, and then how rigid are you or flexible along the way? And I think that kind of leans into some of your soft skills that you're talking about because we all realize over the last 18 months that <laughs> like you make plans and God punches you in the face, right? Is right. whatever. However, no, I'll. Um, Mike Tyson said something similar to that, but. but Kind of the another part of that question, Warren, is that with this vision that someone's getting, so there's being too rigid or too flexible, and how how do you execute to get to that vision? But also, is the vision possible and realistic given your circumstances and resources? And then how do you take what's what you want and then make a realistic plan to that vision? Because like, I mean, if you look at your bio or even your story, you talk about billion dollar companies, million dollar companies, like, you know, in the million dollar company, I don't know if that industry or that business was possible of having 17,000 employees or not. You know what I mean? Like, so how do you kind of reconcile the vision, the timeline resources, and then your skill sets along the way? Well, I think we first have to appreciate that leadership comes in all shapes and sizes and colors. And it's, it's not defined by being six feet two, really good looking and chiseled out of granite. I mean, that's, you know, we've got leaders <laughs> of all shapes and sizes. And it's inherent in all of us. Some leaders are very rigid, very disciplined. Some are very relaxed, 
that's just the nature of their personality. And, and all of those are okay. And we have to recognize across our society and other societies in the world, everywhere I've traveled, that, that there are all kinds of different leaders. Mm-hmm. What we want to see is what kind of impact do they have? What kind of influence do they have, right? And I think there are some soft things. That there, are, there are the five, I talk about this in the book, the five great principles of personal greatness. You know, what are they? So we talked about the foundational elements, which is clarity, vision, certainty of intent, and the power of mm-hmm. God. But the other five have to be practiced every single day. And the first one is increase the personal level of commitment and discipline. All right. So no matter how disciplined we think we are, if we want to be great, we want to be the leader, we have to increase our level of discipline in everything we do. And there are four things that when we get up in the morning, we got to get done. The first is what I preach is something called 10, 10, and 10. It's the way we wake up in the morning. I've never been in a locker room with a group of athletes before a game, and we sit around telling each other that we're going to get killed. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We can't beat these guys. They're too good for us. We just don't do that. We build each other up. Well, what is it that you and I are doing, Ryan, every day when we get out of bed to build ourselves up, to, <laughs> to prepare ourselves, right, for success that day? So there, there are three things I think you have to do. One is sit on the edge of your bed, put your legs over the edge of the bed as soon as you're awake and say, why am I alive today? Why has my life been spared for today? Meaning what's my purpose for the day? We know that people who are driven by purpose are more productive than those who aren't. So what's my purpose for the day? Do that just for a minute. And then go spend 10 minutes somewhere by yourself, 10 minutes of gratitude. Because we know an attitude of gratitude makes the heart happier, makes us happier, right? The third is write, read something inspirational, nothing negative. Just read something inspirational. There, there are all kinds of books. There's a book of positive quotations. There's chicken soup for the soul. There's a book called Thank You. Just, a, just quick stuff, right, to inspire us. And then the third thing is write in your journal every day about the great things that happened to you the day before. The person you met that really said something influencing or the person that you talked to that really had a big challenge. Take the positive things away from that and put them in a journal. Because when you die, Ryan, who's going to get that? Well, your children are going to get that. And they're going to read about their dad and what his life was like. And I, I can read 42 years of my dad's journals. If I die today, our kids can read 45 years of my journals. How cool is that? And they can When, know when do you journal, Warren? Is it morning or evening? I, I, or? I journal first thing in the morning. Yeah. Okay. First I got too many things my in my 10, morning 10, routine. 10. I'm trying to figure out how to. Yeah. <laughs> it's even I only, before I do anything. <laughs> I only write for 10 minutes. I only okay. write for 10 yeah. minutes. And I only write things that are positive because our children are going to have their own junk they got to deal with. They don't need mine. But they, <laughs> right. can, they can take positive lessons away from the things that I learned, right? So that's the first thing we have to do in the morning. It's how we get out of bed to address the world. Now, if I ask any audience that I'm speaking to, what do you do first thing in the morning? Well, I brush my teeth. I walk the dog. I get a newspaper. I turn on TV. I reach for my cell phone. None of those things prepare you for the day. Not one thing that I just mentioned. So unless you're prepared to get ready to play, you lose the first step of leadership. Okay. Now, the second thing you have to do, once your mind is in a really great place after you do 10, 10, and 10, you go work out. The average adult needs 150 minutes of rigorous exercise every week to stay healthy. Our muscles begin to atrophy in our mid-30s. Our bone density begins to dissipate in our mid-30s. And unless we're rebuilding that, we are in a state of decline for the balance of our lives. So you got to work out every day. I worked out this morning for an hour and a half. I, you just got to do it, right? It's not a matter whether you like it or not. You got to do it. If you want to be great, you got to do it. And then the third thing that you need to do is as soon as you work out, within a half an hour, you need protein and need to hydrate. So you need to eat well over the course of the day. And the last thing is that you have to manage your time. If you can't manage your time, you cannot manage your greatness. Managing your time is all about getting greatness. So those four things, if you can do those four things well every day, have a morning routine, right? Work out, eat well, and manage your time, you're on your road. You're on your road. It's super interesting, Warren. I, uh, I, you know, Jordan Peterson is a name that has uh, sparked up uh, and there's both sides of people that have uh, different opinions of him. But like what I find very interesting and as, as I look at leaders in my life or the business owners that we've worked with or even just like, I mean, I've got mental health issues that have sprinkled their way throughout my family. And like Jordan Peterson says, there's four things that he will, he won't even see you as a psychologist unless you sleep well eat well, exercise and have a purpose. Right. <laughs> it's just right. like, like you, the, all of that comes down to having the balance. Where, where did you, as you have, you know, over your career for the decades, like when this was out of balance, where did you see it come up and then how did it manifest itself? 
Well, another story, right? So I was in high school and uh, my senior year in high school, I achieved a lot of awards. I was student body president, number one graduate in the class, all American high school basketball player. I was the coolest guy in the entire world. There's no question about it, right? So, and, <laughs> Just ask you, and, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and so I began acting like it. My ego kind of <laughs> took over and I was just a jerk, right? So so there was a wrestling coach at that high school, California high school, Whittier, California. It was a wrestling coach at the high school named Clint South. He was also my government teacher. And one day after class, he took me aside. He'd been observing me and, and he said, you know, Warren, you're a jerk. And unless you change your attitude and change how you behave, nobody's going to like you. You're not going to have any friends. And then he got up and walked away. An 18-year-old kid hearing that from someone he really admired and respected, that was devastating to me. It was hard on me. But I thought about what he had said. He was 100% right. I was a jerk. And I was acting like it. And I had to make a mid-course adjustment, right? I had to change who I was so that I could socialize better, so I could have more friends, so I could be the better person. He helped me become a better version of myself. And I've had to make mid-course corrections along the way because I've done stupid things and dumb things. And, you know, just like anybody else, I've failed, I've succeeded. But we have to be willing to make corrections when we know we're wrong. And in that moment in time, when I was 18, he really helped me a great deal. And so I think sometimes people, our friends, our closest friends, our family, have to be willing to have have those difficult conversations with us when they see us doing stupid things. Mm -hmm. And most people are afraid to do that. Most people are ill-equipped to do that. And yet it's one of the most important things we can do. We do it with our children. Mm-hmm. We have to have those difficult conversations. I hope we do it in a loving, kind, and tender way. But we still have to have difficult conversations when behavior gets outside the boundaries. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a very powerful moment for me. And I've had other moments in my life similar to that where people have, have said, hey, Warren, have you thought about this? I saw you doing this. He said this. Have you thought about it this way? And those corrections for me have helped me become a better person, I hope. Now, you'd have to talk to my wife to be sure, but, you know, she has her own view of me. So, you know, one of those things. That, uh, but, uh, but, yeah, so I was introducing my wife not long ago. She was going to give a talk, and I got to introduce her. And I said, we've been married 56 years. I said, 56 greatest years of my life. When my wife got up, she said, yeah, there were 10 great years. <laughs> <laughs> of the 56 time, I must have missed something along the way. Right? Yeah, there's this 46 uh, surplus years that were just kind of around the fray, apparently. Yeah, that's right. they I, all I'm... clumped together, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but Brian, anything... I might, you'd, you'd ask a question a while back about sort of some of the soft skills. And I would say it this way. My observation of leaders would suggest to me that there are five qualities of leaders in this order that are really important. First, humility. I think we're living in a world today because everybody's out there on social media, social media permitting, promoting themselves. I think what we're seeing is people looking for those who are more humble, mm-hmm. who are more self-effacing, right? Um, and I, so I think humility is number one. Number two is the ability to listen. I think great leaders are great listeners. And in addition to that, they ask great questions. The best leaders ask the best questions. Why? Because they get information by asking great questions instead of talking all the time, instead of advocating all the time. Use inquiry. There's a big difference in leadership between advocacy and inquiry. And inquiry is really important. So the second great principle of leadership is listening, the ability to listen, to hear others. And my dad, my dad was a real social person, farm guy. And whenever we'd go into town or we'd go somewhere, he'd always strike up a conversation with other people. And I asked him one day, because I was more quiet and shy at that time. And I said, Dad, why do you do that? And he said, you know, everyone has a story and everyone has a voice and we need to listen to their voice. And I thought that was very profound and really helped me in my lifetime. The third quality that's really important is the ability to communicate. Our ability to effectively communicate with other people, our feelings, our views, our goals, our objectives, whatever it might be, but being able to express ourselves well. The fourth thing is EQ, emotional intelligence. It's just the notion that our ability to read other people, to be self-aware, to understand what's going on in any context or any given environment becomes really important. And the fifth thing is IQ. It's the ability to understand and learn and continuously grow and learn. And the reason I was able to go from running a million-dollar company to running a $2.5 billion company is because of all that I learned along the way. Mm Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready when I was 23 as, as a young CEO to run a billion dollar company. 
But I got there over time because I learned so many things from so many great people. So I, I just think those, those are, are some fantastic. softer things that we have to think about. Well, and they're soft, but like, it's so interesting because they're, they're so soft, but like everybody that I listen, like I, there's almost like, a, and I don't want to say it's uniform consensus, but everybody knows that they're that important, right? Cause you can look at a balance sheet and a cash flow statement, an income statement, and it's all based on people. People are organizing together to create that company. And like, so the people are the most important part, but yet we don't have like, it's still called these soft skills, which kind of just implies that they're like second tier. But I, and, and I know that's not what you're saying, but it's like, everybody's acknowledging that right. how damn important they are yet. There's just not as much structure on how do you go about doing this uh, and using these tools like you're mentioning. So it's wonderful that there's books out there like this. I'm curious is like, like when I think about leaders and like the challenge Warren, and I've struggled with this too. And this is, so it's coming from my own angle of like, you have a vision, right? Of So there's, for me, I've got like a life vision thing, the impact that I want to have, you know, our business fits in a component of that. And so does the, the, the podcast, but like, there's these different layers of longevity of the, the length of the vision and where it applies. And then there's the ability to communicate it to your team but as that vision changes and as your team changes, how do you keep the fluidity of this, knowing that as an entrepreneur, more specifically, so many stakeholders depend on the stability and consistency of that vision? You know what I mean? So like you're trying to listen, but you're also trying to communicate the vision because you realize that a lot of people can't see the vision. So you have to continue to communicate while listening knowing that you're changing the like where you might be going without freaking people out. <laughs> it's like this... Massive tightrope, right? Yeah. No, I think it is. I, uh, as a leader, I'm, I'm a collaborative, consensual, uh, all-in kind of leader. And I want people participating with me in defining the vision for our business. There are times when the vision is so strong with the leader that we have to lead from that vision, even though others may disagree with us, even though others may not see it the same way we see it, that we feel so strongly about it and are so precise in its execution that we need to actually go do that. I've had that on time. And there are times when I've been in a management team meeting, for example, and I've said, this is my vision for where we're going. And there wasn't a single person in the room that agreed with me. And, and, yet <laughs> I've said this, and yes, I've, and I've said, I understand. And I respect your right to dissent from this, but this is where we're going to go. And this, because I remember at the White House, a lot of us would sit around the table, the president of the United States would sit at the head of that table. And some of the most amazing people in the world that I ever got a chance to associate with, some of the smartest people would argue their positions before the president. But when the argument was over, when the discussion was over, everybody looked to the end of the table to the person who had to make the decision. Only the president can make those decisions. And those are hard decisions. There's nothing easy that comes to the White House. Only the tough stuff comes to the White House. The right. easy stuff is done, dealt with by other people. But it's really interesting. I, the people that I got to associate with in the White House we're interesting people, right? So I'll just name drop for a second. I apologize to you and your. Oh, come on, bring it. <laughs> but 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 I was just a young twenty-nine-year-old when I got to the White House, and so I was there with Dick Cheney, Don Rumsfeld, Colin Powell, Jim Baker, Bob Gates, Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft. Um, pretty good cast of characters. That was the senior team. I was a member of the senior team by at least experienced, and so. Um, it became obvious to me about 30 days into his presidency that I was going to make a mistake because of my inexperience. And so I was going to make a mistake and it would cause him enormous harm. It always does. When somebody makes a mistake, the president always gets blamed for it. It always gets blown up and so forth. So I decided that the only recourse was to resign. So we had a meeting of those very same people in the Oval Office. The meeting was over. They drifted out. I hung around behind to see if I could get the president's attention. So I said, Mr. President, may I speak to you? And he said, yes please sit down. I sat down and I repeated, not experienced enough, not smart enough, you know, not political enough. I'm sure I'm going to make a mistake and really ruin something for you. And I don't want to do that. Here's my resignation. I put the letter on the edge of his desk. He swiveled his chair to look out across the South Lawn of the White House. And then he looked at the Rose Garden and he, for what I thought was six or eight hours, it was probably about <laughs> 10 seconds. And, uh, and he turned his chair back to me and he said, Warren, the very fact that you've said this to me qualifies you to be here. Oh, awesome. He was saying the fact that you were vulnerable, honest, and transparent means I can trust you. And from that point on, we had a really nice relationship. And he trusted me with information that no 29-year-old farm kid should have ever been trusted with, right? And uh, so I, th I think sometimes we have to be 
vulnerable, honest, and transparent. And, and we have to be that all the time to gain the trust of others. Mm-hmm. And that's the humility. That's the number one quality I think that we have to have is recognizing, look, we're just, we're just a person occupying time and space, trying to do the best we can with the resources that we have. And if we can learn from each other like you and I are today, Ryan, great. We can be, get a little bit better. And that's terrific. But the fact is, I was asked once, what are we doing here on planet Earth? And I and I said we're just walking each other back home. That's what we that, do. We're that just walking a, each other back home. I like our, that a our, lot. our job is just to support each. Other. We're to support each other and help each other. We're just all going back home. However wow. you define home, we're just all headed in that direction. And uh, and we just need to help each other along the way. What is it? Um, you know, when you think about leaders, one thing that I've struggled with, Warren, is. Um, and, and I, you, you probably hear me going back to the vision because I, for some reason, I believe and it's probably because it's principle number one for you is like, once that's clear, you can calibrate everything. And I have a hard time, like, this is how I've run my entire life because it honestly, it's a self-preservation mechanism more because like without like a big picture, I don't know where the hell I stand in time and space, right? So it's like, hey, there's a big vision that's really freaking hard, kind of like Mount Everest and like, let's just go because everything else kind of just, you know, finds a way to like prioritize against that. Is there a, like, I think the challenge that I've seen with uh, so many people on the show, Warren, I mean, 240 some episodes and the podcast used to be called life after business because after people sold the vision that they had, their identity was so intertwined with this vision and it was the business and the vision and a revenue amount and an employee amount and then when you decoupled that, it was like the surgical extraction of their identity. So how, like, I mean, when you think about you were working in the president president's quarters in the age of at the age of twenty nine, and then you got these corporate tenures that that for all intents and purposes, everybody would say one time would be successful. How do you change that vision without losing yourself, or how do you hold yourself in kind of the same place of a, a vision that might? sunset in your life will continue. Does, does the question make sense? Yeah, it, it makes great sense. In fact, Linda Ronstadt, the great singer, uh, once said, it's, the question isn't about life after death. The question is life before death. It's what we do with our lives here. Now, if we look at the history of time since the planet Earth was formed, uh, tens of millions of years, uh, a human life is a nanosecond in time, mm-hmm. 75, 80 years. It's just, it's that quick, right? It's that quick. So what we do, we better pay attention to, and we better pay attention to it in a specific way. I think the first is to recognize that we need to be leaders in four parts of our lives, family, business, community, and self. I've always said, if you can't lead yourself, you can't lead others. If you can't discipline yourself, if you can't achieve yourself, if you can't do things for yourself, you can't lead other people, right? Because you don't have credibility because you're not doing it yourself. You so, most likely don't I have anything to give too, right? Like, I mean, yeah, if you're not right. full and confident with who we are, I mean, you're just going to be depleting what you don't have. Exactly. And I think the other, the other piece of that is the notion that those four pieces are not separate life verticals. We always talk about life work balance, right? Or family and work balance, right? As if they're separate and distinct, as if we're the person <laughs> spinning plates on the ends of sticks. And every once in a while, you got to reach up and spin it a little to keep it going, right? <laughs> I just don't believe in that. I believe in work-life integration. Yeah, I believe everything, all those four buckets are integrated together. And we have a rhythm and pace in our lives and it ebbs and flows, but it's all one piece. And I think great leaders understand that. They understand that perspective, that our lives are, are uniform and unified and they have to come together. And all those pieces have to work because if you're having a really bad day at home with your spouse or partner, you're going to have a bad day at work, right? If you're having a lousy day in the community, then there's real doubt about your leadership, right? For self. So all these pieces have to work together in an interesting way. And I think that we have to appreciate that and understand that. And there's a rhythm and pace and it's different for every one of our lives. There are times when our business is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And there are times when our family is most important. Let me give you an example of that. So I was um, driving out to the airport one day. I was going to fly to New York. We're going to do a $75 million acquisition. We'd been working on it for six or eight months. It was a big deal for us at that time. It was a huge company for us to buy at that moment in time in our careers. 
And I was excited and we had probably 25 or 30 bankers and lawyers and accountants waiting for us in New York to try to finish off the deal. I'm about two miles from the airport and I get a call from my wife. And uh, we have a son, our second son was born. He's a special needs son, a great, great kid, but he was born with a hyla membrane condition, meaning he couldn't get enough oxygen into his lungs when he was first born. And, and it affected some things. And so as a result, um, he was bullied as a young boy and he was challenged a lot. Fortunately, he had an older brother and a lot of older, younger brothers and sisters that protected him, took care of him, so it was all right. But he still had to go through some hard times. So I'm on my way to the airport, get a call from my wife. She said, Scott needs you. And I said, well, honey, you know, I'm going to New York. I'm going to close this deal. And we got lots of people waiting. And this is the biggest deal we've ever done. And, and she said, as only a spouse can say, your son needs you. So I'm okay. at a moment. I'm a moment in time for a decision. Which is most important because we have competing interests from time to time. Mm -hmm. And this moment, family collided directly with business. And I was faced with a choice. For me, it wasn't much of a choice because I've always put family first. So that's just not an issue. I turned the car around and went home. For the next three days, I held Scott and I cried with Scott and we played together and had a good time. And three days later, he went back off to school. The deal blew up because I didn't show up. Right. I called him and told him I couldn't come because I take care of my son. And a lot of people didn't understand why I had to take care of my son when we had a big deal pending. Fortunately, we got the deal back together about six months later and closed the transaction. It all worked out just fine. But we have to predetermine what's most important in our lives. We cannot wait for the moment and then decide at that moment. We have to decide early on. And for us, my wife and I spent four years before our first child designing our family and designing our lives. And we're living the very life that we designed. We decided we wanted to raise our kids on a farm. So 45 years ago, we bought a farm. And it's right in the middle of the city, but we bought a farm. We have 60 acres. Now all of our children have built homes there. So we have a <laughs> you and I were talking family. about that before, and I love it. I mean, it's... So, so I, I, think, I, think, I think we want to make life complicated, and I don't think it is complicated. It's a series of simple decisions about who we are, what's important to you, and from then on, it's just becoming the best person we can be. And we can apply the principles in this book to that. You can take those principles, and if you apply them every day, you're going to be infinitely better in every aspect of your life than you were without those principles. Can you explain how you're in the designing your life with your wife um, or through a business, like how the values you were, I'm assuming you're using those kind of like a, uh, like a lens, right? And how you came up with those values. And so someone that... You know, I'm assuming there's a range of people listening in where they maybe have never written them down, but they're probably operating under some sort of set of core values or it's something that's loose or they have it only in the business, but not in their life. So kind of maybe just um, unpack the core values and how you've used them along the, along the way. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that are important. The one is that you know, the same way if I were to ask almost anyone, I said, if you could just pull out, uh, I'm sure you have it in your wallet, in your purse, just pull out your family vision statement. And people just look at me with a blank stare. I mean, they, what are you talking about? I said, well, do you have a vision statement for your business? Yes. Do you have a business statement for your vision statement for your family? Uh, no, no, haven't done that. So we start with a vision statement in our family. We put nine members of our family around the table. Our oldest child was 16 or 17. Our youngest was about three. Three-year-old didn't contribute much. He made a big mess, but didn't contribute much. Dandy. <laughs> um, and we had, we had stacks of three by five cards in front of each person. And we simply asked them, uh, write a word down that describes our family. And so they began to write words. And then we took those words. We had about 250 words. And this is over a period of six months. Uh, we did it over dinner once a week. And then uh, took those words and started comparing them. Do you mean joy or happiness? Do you mean beatings or floggings? You know, which do you mean? Right. So it's, it's this notion of which, of which word do we want to use? So we got down to about 50 words. And then it was time for, uh, uh, for us to draft a concept. So we put the words in concepts. And then we needed to tie it together in a draft statement. Our oldest son and I were asked to draft the statement. We worked on it for several weeks, brought it back and said, boy, here it is. And we thought it was great. And everybody in the family went thumbs down. That doesn't work. It doesn't express. It. So we worked and worked and worked and finally got a draft that everybody in the family voted in favor of. So when you come to our home, Ryan, which I hope you do, when you come to our home, Tucson, Arizona, when you open the front door, the first thing that you'll see is a framed vision statement that was created 35 years ago by our family. And, um, and, and it's what we live by. The second piece you've asked about is values. We did the values the same way. Let's, let's write down individual words that we believe are core to our family. 
And if we had a family theme, what would that family theme be? If we wanted to be known as a family, how would we want to be known? Our theme is we do hard things. That's our family theme. We love doing hard stuff, right? See, anybody can do easy stuff. Mm-hmm. Our family likes doing hard stuff. And our children take great pride in that, right? The notion that we're going to do some stuff that maybe other people wouldn't do. Um, and then maybe bungee jumping or jumping out of airplanes or, or any number of things, right? Uh, we just do hard stuff. And we think that's fun. And that defines our family. And then we listed our family values. And we ultimately came to a distillation process, just like we did with a vision statement, where we've got them and those values are listed in the book uh, of what are important to our family, what the core values of our family are. And so I think we can do much the same way. I hope that's helpful to you, Ryan. No, yeah, it it is. And maybe give an example of when people don't do this, what happens? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, as we explained to our family, every game that we're aware of is played within the boundaries of a field, a court, an ice rink. And so we have boundaries within our family. We have a playing field. And within that playing field, there are certain rules and there are certain things that are negotiable. Now, if you want to operate outside the playing field, those are all non-negotiables. If you go outside and you get in trouble, if you use use drugs, you use alcohol, you hurt somebody, right? Those are non-negotiables as far as our family is concerned. That's really serious stuff. If we play within the field of our family, we can work everything out. We can figure it out together because we love each other, right? But if you go off and do something dangerous and stupid, then you're operating on your own and it's tough and it's going to be difficult for us as a family. And fortunately, our children haven't done that, but there certainly are children. Uh, Let me give you an example. Our kids were having uh, some food at a fast, uh, fast food place one night after a football game, high school football game two factions from the different schools came into that place to get food. Pretty soon they were arguing and pushing and shoving and pretty soon a fight broke out. Police arrived and uh, six kids were arrested, three from one school, three from another school. The three arrested from our children's school were well known to our children. And so we went down to the, they, they took the kids down to the police station. All, all the families, of course, rushed down. The first thing they wanted to bail their kids out. They didn't want their kids to stay in jail overnight. This was terrible. Our kids were never at fault. You know, typical protect the child kind of thing. It must have been somebody else, right? We got to have an excuse for everything, except for one set of parents who are good friends of ours, who are very strong about the boundary. Mm-hmm. And if you get in trouble outside the boundary, which this was, that's non-negotiable. So it came time for the their part of the hearing. And uh, the judge said, what do you want to do? And the parents said, leave them in jail. All the other kids got bailed out, all five of the other six kids. But they said, he did something wrong. He broke the law. Therefore, there's a consequence for breaking the law. Leave him in jail. Judge, it's at your discretion as to what you want to do. That's the reality of life. And as parents, I think we're living in a society today where everyone wants to protect their children. We hear helicopter parents. We hear cocooning parents. It's this notion that if your child's not playing on the soccer field enough. It's the coach's fault. If your child's not doing well in the classroom, it's the teacher's fault, right? It, we're, we're insulating and isolating our children in ways that don't allow them to really experience life. And when they get out at 18 or 19 to go to college, universities, get a job, whatever it is, they're ill-prepared to face the difficulties of life. And so we, our job as parents, it seems to me, is to prepare our children for a life of success, knowing that there are going to be hard times out there. Amen. Like, I, I think that that is potentially one of the most important things that the next 30 years could come that like, that is the best investment we could have and switching. Cause I don't want to be respectful of your time is switching um, over to the, like, over to the business leader and the entrepreneur that's listening in. And I think, you know, to your point, like if they're not, if people aren't doing this for themselves or for their family, all this stuff is a ripple effect right into the business and your leadership at, at work and at your company and, and, in today's world that, and I struggle with this communicating, you talked about one of your principles being a communication, right? Of that vision. In today's like micro bit world, how do you see leaders effectively communicate? Maybe it's like the, like the, from the first, you know, phase of the vision, but like maybe ongoing communicate the vision in a way that when some of the stuff is long and it takes time to communicate and there are complex things that people need to understand. Like what are ways that you see people effectively communicate it and then continue to integrate it into their culture? 
Great question. I think we have to take that big long-term vision and we have to break it out in bite-sized pieces so that people can see their progress toward that vision on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. And we need to continuously talk about that. You and I as leaders need to be moving throughout the organization. And moving can be personal, physical, or it can be online. But we need to continuously be communicating throughout the organization what that vision is and what those bite-sized steps are, what the next step is, right? And we may set OKRs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, key objectives out there mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a notion quarterly. And then what is it we're going to do each day, each week? to advance that agenda toward that vision, toward that OKR. And so we have to do that, right? So it's this notion that some leaders are, are really good at big picture, but they can't figure out how to create the pathway to get there. Right, totally. We have to constantly communicate the pathway because most people who are colleagues, right, working in the business together, all trying to get there, we need to align the vision of that person to the vision where we are going as an organization. We need to have that alignment. And if we can't get that alignment, we're gonna be unsuccessful. So the earliest entry person for your firm, the newest member of your firm should be able to see that what they're doing every day aligns to and is important to the vision of the company. If Mm -hmm. we can create that alignment end to end for all the people who work with us as colleagues, then we have a huge opportunity to be successful. And so the leader is the one who has to create that alignment. The leader is the one who has to model the behavior and the values to the business. The leader is the one who has to express the vision over and over and over again. In in a, one last follow-up question on that, and I, I can get to the point of letting you go, is uh, how do you take the intangibles? And a lot of the stuff we talked about is not in a financial statement or in a project completion, you know, SOW. <laughs> so like, right. how are you taking and, you know, Obviously, that's going to be table stakes and making sure that you're getting where you need to go in your business. But how are you measuring and monitoring people's alignment with the values of the leader and also creating other mini leaders? Because any successful organization that I look into or work with as a client, Warren, I mean, it's like the threshold is absolutely the person I'm talking to. They're like, oh, it's not possible. Hire these kind of employees. I'm just like, for you, it's not, but I've got another client over here that's completely figured it out. So it's this, how do you get to the point where you're leveling up other people and measuring some of the stuff that you've talked about? Well, I think, first of all, leaders create other leaders. The really great leaders are always creating new leaders. You look at some head coaches at universities, their assistants go on to become head coaches. Mm-hmm. You look at other head coaches and their assistants are always assistants. They don't become head coaches. One's creating leaders, one's creating employees. That's a big difference. So when I look at whether it's 10,000 employees or 10 employees, my job is to create them as leaders and to create the next. And I know they're not going to work for me for the rest of their life, but my job is to make them the best they can be in our organization. And when they go somewhere else to wish them the best, to -hmm. take what they've learned here and become better somewhere else. I hope that I can create other CEOs of other businesses. That's what I want to do. So I want to create leaders. So I think that's really important. The second piece that you've asked is really accountability and responsibility. It's the notion of how do we track this stuff? I really believe strongly in having regular accountability sessions with everyone in an organization at every level of the organization. When we had 17,000 employees, every single person in that of the 17,000 had specific goals and objectives for their job, which got measured on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. All of them were directed toward our annual targets and our vision down the road. And so we measured them on a regular pace. The old adage, right, of what what gets done is what gets measured, right? So what gets measured is what gets done, right? So Mm -hmm. it's just this notion that we have to continuously measure performance. I think people also like to perform well, want to perform well, want to do well. We have huge incentives in the organization always for those who exceed the standards that we're expecting, right? So I think there are a lot of ways to do it. Building a high-performance organization is really, uh, really challenging. In fact, the, the next book I'm going to write is going to be titled How to Build a Happy, High Success, a Happy Successful, High-Performance Family. Because I think the same principles that we apply in business apply in family. I, yeah, I agree. And it's harder because, again, you don't have the you don't have the, the habits of routinely sitting down with your spouse, your family to do the stuff that you talked about, right? You do in business because you have your quarterlies yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Two last questions. What is the impact that you want to have in the world with this book? I'd like for people to read the book and the 25 examples of people like themselves who have experienced very difficult times and have used these principles to find their success, to define for themselves their own success, 
their own vision of where they're going with their life and utilize these tools and principles to get there, to improve their life however they would like to do that. If you apply these principles, I can guarantee you that your life will change and improve. It'll just get better. And if you only did one thing, it's how you wake up in the morning to set your mind for success for the day. That's pretty powerful. Um, Last question is, uh, what does the word intentional mean to you? Intentional to me means choice, that I choose to do something purposefully. Intentionality is a conscious act to execute. And so it's based on purpose and it's choice. The great gift we've been given in this life is choice, right? You and I, after this time together today, can choose to take the day off. We can choose to go to bed. We can choose to go have a Dr. Pepper. We can choose to do whatever we want, right? Why don't we choose to take an hour for strategic thinking? And why don't we choose to define our future vision? And why don't we choose to intentionally act on that future vision? And why don't we choose to live our values every day? We do those kinds of things. Life is more fun. It's happy. It's exciting. Right. I was just going to say, like, I mean, that fun. sounds like fun. Like, like yeah. you got to plan, fun. you know, you know why you're waking up every day and why all those things that happen every day of you getting punched in the face from a client calling and quitting or the employee or whatever. It's like, it just puts context. To you. You're like, well, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> That's right. So this morning I woke up, I did my morning routine. I worked out and I went to take a shower and suddenly we had no water. So that, you know, for a lot of people that could ruin your day, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I threw on my clothes. I walked over to the well. There's a burst pipe. We had probably 5,000 gallons of water on the ground. Right? <laughs> oh, so, no. so we had to turn it off. We had to turn it off. I'm mucking through this stuff. Our son is helping me. And we're mucking through this stuff. We turn off the water. We call the, the well people who are going to come out because our property is fed by wells. And so they're going to be out today and fix it and so forth and so on. And, and you can either let that upset your day. Isn't this interesting? Or you can just like go take a cold shower, like half the people out there these days. Yeah, no thanks. (laughs) Uh, Get get in the horse tank and and get wet. You know, I mean, you can do do all kinds of stuff. So uh, I I just, uh, and my dad was really great about always looking on the bright side of things, always looking at opportunity. And I think COVID 19 is like that. There are those who have been so consumed by it and what's coming at them downstream that they haven't looked upstream to see what's going to be exciting going forward. Crisis creates opportunity. There are going to be great companies, great people who are created during this time of COVID. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be others who's going to be so consumed by it, it's going to cripple them for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. We choose. We decide. It's not COVID. We decide how we're going to be during this period of time. We can all do better. I love it. Um, so if people want to find you, find the book, what's the best place to get in touch with you and get the book? Uh, warrenrustan.com. And uh, there are videos there. There are Facebook live episodes, all kinds of things. I would just tell you that I've never been on Facebook, Instagram, anything at all in any way until I wrote this book. And then the publisher of the books, Forbes Publishing Company, wanted me to do some things. And I'm just quite uncomfortable putting myself out there like that. So uh, but that's where you can find things about me. And if you want to talk or get in touch with me, please do so through warrenrustan.com. We'd be glad to chat with you. And Ryan, I might just say to your podcast is influencing lots of people. You've had great guests. I've looked at some of them and um, you're doing a great job. You ask really good questions. I just want you to know how much I appreciate you in your leadership for business and family and what you're doing with your podcast. Warren, that means a lot. And I mean that, I, I don't say that lightly because I don't take appreciation very well, even though it's one of the things that gets me going. So it, it, it means a lot. And, you know, and I think the same thing with you and your book is I, I'm hopeful, Warren, that this long form content like this is what people start to gravitate towards because everybody's worse off with the 30 second tidbits. I mean, when we're, all, well, when we're all arguing about what's truth, it's just ridiculous. We can, No one can march towards the vision because no one can agree on what rules <laughs> set the vision. So keep, keep true to it. I, I love the videos that you've got on there. And I think the book is, it's practical, right? Like, I mean, we all have to wake up every day and, and hopefully enjoy it, right? Like, why wouldn't you want to? The alternative sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Let's, let's wait, wake up to the world that we've designed and that we're executing. Let's make the world we want to live in. I think we have much more control than we want to anticipate or appreciate. So let's go ahead and do do the things that are necessary to live in the world that we want to live in. Life by design matters. Warren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Ryan. Hope to see you again soon. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Warren. Again, I'm going to circle back and just talk about the title. How clear is your vision? How clear is your intent behind that vision? 
And then are you guiding that vision and that plan with the right core values? If any of those are hazy or fuzzy in any way, your leaders that are next to you aren't going to have clarity of vision and clarity of intent. And then also that's going to ripple into the lower level employees and all the stakeholders. I'm going to take a quote from Dan Martell's podcast I did recently. Your vision has to be big enough where all your employees and stakeholders fit inside of it. And that vision has to be insanely clear and you have to have actionable ways to get to that vision. If you want help clarifying that vision towards a more valuable business so that you can increase the probability that you accomplish all your goals long-term, go check out the Intentional Growth Training. Go to arcona.io. We got new messaging and new videos out on the website so you can see more about what's in the training, what you're gonna get out of it, and what results you're gonna have going forward after you've gone through the training. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Warren and I will see you next week.